Welcome to Fintech Insider Takeovers. I'm David Breer and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host this week, Lita Glipsis. How's it going, Lita? I'm having a good day, David. Yeah, a good day? Any, I'm any a good particular day. reason? Or? Well, I'm sitting next to Will I Am for the second time in my life. Well, on that Be note. Be that, David. I know, yeah, well... I mean, only the first time, so let's see where we get with this. All right, uh, today we're bringing you a very, very special takeover show. None other than the good folks from Atom Bank joining us today. Uh, thanks for coming along, guys. How's it going? Great. Good. Yeah. Pretty good. Uh, and we have, uh, I think, um, I mean, the people who are making this stuff happen at Atom, which is great. So Mr. Mark Mullen, who's the Chief Executive Officer. How's it going, Mark? It's good, thanks. It's all good. Busy, busy day, I think, from, uh, yeah, from what I heard. Yeah, busy. Early start. Uh, we've got Mr. Simon Brown, Head of Business Banking. How's it going, Simon? Yeah, very good. I get to sit next to Leader for the first time in my life. <laughs> it's going to be unforgettable. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of firsts for everybody, which is great. <laughs> and Claire Framrose, Head of Personal Banking. How's it going? Good, thanks, yeah. And we, there's a piano in the corner. You were knocking out an awesome tune on a minute ago, <laughs> which is amazing. So, like, talent in the room is high right now, which is awesome. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> It is also a great pleasure to introduce a very special guest. I gave it away earlier, board advisor to Atom Musician Entrepreneur, Mr. Will Iam. Hey, everybody. Usually in radio stations, there's like bells and like exciting noises. But <laughs> now it's me squeaking. <laughs> He's like, yeah, clap. Like, yeah. yeah, we can drop some bombs later, right? Yeah. It's, it's cool. It's really good to have you on Fintech Insider for a second time. We were super excited coming up uh, to meet you last time. Uh, what we felt when we left and what all our audience feedback was was that you came across like the nicest person in the world. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this and, and all the Twitter love that's going to be coming in after this goes live. No, my no mom, pressure to the rest of you guys. <laughs> yeah, my mom, I, I get that from my mom. My mom's like the nicest person on the planet. That's so nice. Like, yeah, and my brother Carl, he's like, he makes friends with everybody. Like I went back to the Corinthia because I don't stay there as much as I used to. I had lunch the other day. And when I left, the door guy was like, where's your brother at? <laughs> he makes friends with everyone. That's amazing. To be like yeah. a top line celebrity. It's like, where's your brother? <laughs> yeah. Where's your brother? Where's Carl? How's Carl? I was like, oh, Carl, it's cool. He's, yeah. But yeah, I get it from my mom. We get it from my mom. Where is your brother? My brother is, yeah. He's, he's, uh, we, I was with him yesterday. He, he's here. He lives in London oh, okay. too. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to keep my, my sort of, uh, fandom under control for the rest of this hour, um, and let's let's kick off this takeover. And um, I'll bring the rest of the Atom team in, guys. Uh, it's so so good to have you here. Uh, Mark, can we start with you? For our listeners around the world who might not be familiar, can you give us a quick overview of Atom and your history to date since uh, your inception in 2014? Yeah, of course. So we're about five years established as a business. We're about three years trading. Um, I like to think we're the simultaneously the largest and smallest bank in Durham, which is a university city in the northeast of England. Um, we employ, ooh, gosh, 360 people. And uh, we offer savings and loans to business and personal customers in the UK. You're also the most trusted bank in the UK, according to Trustpilot, with a 74 NPS score. How does that feel and how did you get that? Well, it's, you know, you can't, I'd like to think you can't fake it, actually. So you get there because you offer a fairly decent product, uh, you're transparent, you offer good value. And when things go wrong, because things will go wrong, <laughs> uh, you've got good people to help customers sort it out. Hmm. I, I've had these conversations with you a few times before about challenger bank, non-challenger bank, and, you know, with your, your background as well in the organizations that you've been. Like, challenger is a thing that's thrown about a lot. Do you sort of consider yourselves a challenger bank or, or not? 
I don't I don't think about it a huge amount if if I'm really honest. So the other sort of semantic is neobank or the regulator likes to think we're non-systemic banks, which is, you know, doesn't exactly roll off the top of the tongue now, does <laughs> they're, it? They're not great at marketing, are they? So we're just a bank. You can call us whatever you like. I find, um, like you say, with with the the fintechs, you know, with the Starlings and the Monzos, there's a there's sort of a, a a bit of a spread between how people are approaching different things. You know, obviously, people like Starling and Monzo have approached it with a, a kind of a, a marketplace banking approach. You guys have gone much more universal with all of the different products. How do you sort of see that shaping out in terms of that that model? Well, listen, I don't think there's necessarily one right answer, and nor do I think that just because we're doing what we're doing today means we're right, okay, because there's a whole bunch of ways of approaching this industry. I guess you'd say we're a lending bank and a savings bank for now, so so we've got a significant number of savers and a, a huge amount of their money on deposit with us. And then in, in a very simple way that banks work, we use that money to lend to businesses and, and to lend uh, for the moment to, to home buyers and home movers and, 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 and you know, Feel like homeowners of one sort or the other. So uh, we're not finished. We're on a journey. It's going to take us quite a long time to build the rest of the bank. Um, but I guess if you were to sort of describe it, you'd say if it carries our mark, if it carries our sign, then you know we want we want it to be a great experience, and we'll probably we'll probably make it. Hmm. I like the sound of that. Can can we can we stay that for a second though? Because quite a lot of the players in this space, the neobanks and the challenges or whatever you want to call them, focus on the experience quite a lot, and and it's inevitable that everyone um, should do so. But you you've made quite a lot of um, effort and, and public announcements around sustainable lending and sustainable saving. Can you talk to us about? What goes behind that? Well, uh, listen, sustainable means a whole bunch of different things in today's world, doesn't it? So, so uh, at one level, what's, what's the fundamental sort of objective of the business? It's to offer uh, a product that people don't feel trapped by, uh, that, 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 uh, one that they actually understand, one that doesn't carry, if you like, hooks, lines and sinkers, so that we'll tell you when, it, when it's up. And if you go somewhere else, that's fine. If you buy one of our mortgages, we won't be the one who advises you on it because that'll be independent. And so we're not manipulating you. And on that basis, we think that you should actively choose the bank that you bank with. It shouldn't be a question of, you know, God, I can't be asked to move or I just get stuck and, you know, it all seems a bit too much hassle. And that means that we're going to try and make money honestly. And by that, I mean sustainably, which is that you've got to actively choose the product or, or actively choose us as your bank and not just sort of fall into a lazy habit. And I guess that's working based on the customer satisfaction scores. But do you do you sort of see that as the thing that the banks are being, you know, if you look at the the big, uh, you know, tier one banking organizations, is that what is really being challenged? Do you think it's, I mean, doing things customers actually need and actually want, you know, delivering a service that actually they, they benefit from rather than because to your, to your point there around, there's been a lot of sort of punitive charges around current accounts that actually aren't really in the interest of consumers. Well, actually, we were talking, I was talking to Will about this over over, over uh, lunch a little earlier. And one of the things you've got to face up to in the banking industry is that there's a relatively small number of very big banks. And that means that, that if you don't like the one you're with, there's not a huge number of choices about where you can go. So whether you've been guilty of punitive charges or not, it sort of doesn't matter. It's like, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, where else are you going to look? Well, it's limited choices working to exactly the same business model. So the the thing that is interesting about what you're presenting as a proposition here is that you're not prepared to make money the way everyone else does because everyone else does it. No, and that that is uniquely difficult to do in the banking industry. So there's a reason everyone else does it. 
Yeah, because mm-hmm. it works. Yeah. Let's face it. This banking industry relies upon people having very little time to worry about how much is in their savings account and whether they're earning any interest on it or running out of time to rearrange their mortgage and basically just timing out. And and if you run a business that, that stops that happening or works bloody hard to stop that happening, it's going to make it more difficult to make money. Mm. The bet we're making, if it is a bet, is that in the end that pays back because people will learn to trust you. And trust is something that I don't think you can claim. I think you have to actually experience it. And that that's not something that takes a month or you know half a year or a year. Trust is a sort of intangible thing. It's a feeling, it's an emotion, and it takes a long time to develop. Mm. No, I think that's a good point. There's a very big difference between choice and competition. You know, choice of a red one or a blue one or a green one or people actually competing for services that add value, right? Yeah, there is a very big difference between it. But at the end of the day, we don't, I hope we're not smoking our own dope. At the end of the day, we're also a bank, you know, uh, and the price matters. The, the money matters. It, we don't, our money is no different than anyone else's money in banking. Frankly, if you're saving, you should be looking to get the best interest rate on your savings. And we're not ashamed to say that matters and we should be offering you the best interest. So it's not just about the experience. You can make it really cool and really slick to buy a product. But if at the end of the day, the product's not very good, why did you bother? So, so you've got to get them both right, frankly. Hmm. And I, th- I think there's something important in this, which is about designing something to meet a customer need. So you mentioned, David, that the, the banks uh, traditionally haven't necessarily met that need. I think one of the things that we're trying to do differently is to think about what the customer actually needs and design a proposition that meets that need rather than design a proposition and then find a customer who might have a need that's met by it. And it's a different way of thinking. And it goes to what Mark's saying, which is as a result of that, customers then start to trust you. Yeah. From the external observer perspective, we've we've been waiting for um, that gear change because what we've seen since the advent of any digital interface is that people learn super fast. So the minute something becomes available, mm-hmm. uh, people go from going, oh, that's different, to, wait, why isn't everything like this extremely quickly? Mm. And that tipping point becomes very interesting for the for the industry as a whole. So when we hear of people going for trust first, a different uh, pricing model, obviously everyone needs to make money, otherwise we're not going to be here to make a difference tomorrow. Um, for me, the most interesting piece is what you're going to do to the industry while when people sit up and go, hey, hold on a second, this is possible. We were talking about, again, we were talking about this earlier, which is we're talking about a generation, I think, you know, a new generation in, in, in commerce, not just in banking, right? And they don't really expect to pay for stuff. So, so increasingly, you know, you're talking about digital experiences where at least they start life as free. And then the owners of those experiences spend a few years figuring out, you know, that they're going to want to build critical mass and get a whole bunch of customers onto their platform or onto their channel. And they'll figure out how to monetize it later. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether that's a trend that's going to stay, Will, or whether, whether, you know, whether it's fair and transparent or does it really matter? Does anyone actually care? Should it be free forever? Um, I saw that happen to my old career, music, where people used to pay for it. And then someone came along and provided a pipe that allowed you to get the same product for free. And it was deemed illegal for a hot minute. Um, and then Apple came and saved the day for, for a second where people were downloading it onto an iPod. But now it's free again. Right? Freemium 
there's more people on Spotify fr on freemium than there are premium. Um, and because the value of music isn't, there's no value there. It's a different world. It is what it is. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just, you know, but people are listening to music more than they ever have. Um, and we're seeing the upside when you're seeing the, you know, the switchover where people are now subscribing um, on these, you know, these these platforms are king. Spotify is king. Um, and I love Apple Music. But uh, to Mark's point, we have this new generation, folks, that everything's free on Instagram. Everyone, everything's free on, on Facebook. I got I, I, all my engagements and my emotional connections are free on Snapchat. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I don't want a car. I'm going to pay for an Uber. But it still feels free. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have to take anything out of my pocket. Yeah. I can't even pay with cash. It feels free. Mm -hmm. Even though a transaction's happening, it feels free. It's a very good point, and it, and it really colors how we interact with people. But you, you touched on something um, that we want to stay with a little bit, and, and we talked about it last time we met. See what I did there? Mm. Just drop it in there. Um, and that's the fact that things feel free, but very often what you pay with, you don't realize how valuable it is essentially um, well, data and identity. Data is, is what, it, what, what the currency is. And I think right around the corner of this data currency that a lot of people are waking up to realize that data is gold, is that trust is the most valuable currency. And so right now, some people, you know, they think it's marketing, um, but trust is going to be the most important thing uh, right around the corner. Mm. You know, your relationship with the people that are providing you a service or a product uh, the combination of the two, uh, whether it's hardware and some software or an experience, whether you're out at a live event or you're living on some platform, trust. If you don't trust, there's not going to be, there's no, there's no marketing before we, in the 80s and the 90s, you marketed to get the customer. You trust to get the customer. Mm. Like marketing is when a company pays attention to the marketplace and spends money against that to get new customers. Tomorrow's not marketing. Tomorrow's trusting. There's going to be the CTO, who's not a chief technology officer. That's a chief trust officer. <laughs> I like that a lot. Mark, hi, one immediately. <laughs> I, I completely agree there because it's, it's, uh, marketing is trying to get somebody to think something about you, but if you get them to trust you, they, they believe it. And the idea of sort of virality around that as well, being in a situation where if somebody trusts you, they're going to tell a bunch of other people about the products, the services that you, you give to them, right? Or, like, I mean, I trust Apple. Apple search doesn't work on my on email. But I trust it's going to get right. I, don't, I still keep it. I complain all day like I can't can't search on iCloud online the way I could on my phone. But I still trust Apple. I'm not so how long are you going to give them? Because from, from a bank perspective, from a fintech perspective, trust is the thing we, we worry about, exactly for the reasons you, you, you pointed out. Traditional banks knew that people trusted them to be predictable, not necessarily good, but predictable. And, and banks like Atom are fighting for a new kind of trust, a positive and constructive trust. Yeah, I, I believe, I, I, just, I see things a little further. I think banks like Atom, the banks like, you know, in the past, 
there's no room for them. A bank tomorrow, when data is gold, and when I say tomorrow, I'm talking about 20 years out, mm-hmm. Adam Bank is in the pole position to be that bank of 20 years from now. Because you have to think everything um, over um, 10 years from now, looking out 20 years from now. And the, if you're an old traditional bank, it's going to be so hard for you to adapt to this radical curve that's coming in the next five to 10 years. So you think we're up for even more change? Yes. With blockchain technology, these crazy algorithms that are coming into our lives, artificial intelligence, doing more and more of the heavy lifting that, you know, what a banker would be. As a, as a recovering banker, I, I always wonder what, what the options are for us. But can we stay with artificial intelligence? Because you, you spend time thinking about it, you've invested in it. What do you see as the positives and potential challenges? The potential challenges are the ones that I'm so happy people are waving the flag on, and that's biases, mm-hmm. like algorithmic biases. Um, and as these, you know, AI is here. It's in our lives now. Um, and we're... You know, we're pointing out these these biases. So those challenges, regulations, over-regulating, um, the fact that there's no regulations now and regulations are about to be put in, you know, the, the thin line between over-regulating to stifle the growth, um, but at the same time, you know, making sure that people are protected. And because it's so broad, AI. You know, spell checks AI, facial recognitions AI. There's so many types of AIs. Which AI are you talking about? You know, but the combination of a lot of these different algorithms that can be used to harm, that is something that we all should, you know, get on accord of and make sure that, you know, the regulations prohibit folks from doing the kind of things that disrupted our election in America mm-hmm. um, and other elections that are just around the corner. Um, these advanced algorithms. So, um, it's a very broad subject, AI. <clears throat> Sorry, you heard my voice right there. I was kind of slow that down. I kind of like <laughs> keep it, keep it. I Alex like, is like, <laughs> I like a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> keep that, keep that. I'll put an auto tune on it. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah. So yeah, AI is a it's a scary subject without regulations. Um, it's a scary subject when you don't educate people on what AI is and what it isn't. Um, when you don't educate people as a whole while you're investing in AI, the extremes, that's scary. A dumb society with these, you know, very few folks that have these super intelligent platforms. Do, do we have a window to get it right? You're, you're painting a very vivid but precariously balanced situation where if we overregulate, we could get it wrong. If we underregulate, we could get it wrong. But things are evolving, as you say, super rapidly. It's here with us now. Is it a one chance to get it right? This is the most important time because we're preventing something that we've never, we've never been here before in humanity. You know, we've been the dominant species on the planet. Think of everything that you see around you was came through our filter. This microphone I'm speaking into, the room that we're in, the chair, the table, this piano, was filtered through our mind. The streets, the car that you drive, 
it all came through our mind. In the next 10, 20 years, it won't be filtered through our brain. There'll be a different filter that are going to decide the things that the tools that we use, the clothes that we wear, the products that we buy, the world that surrounds us will go through a different logic filter. I guess we, we don't even know where or who is going to regulate this stuff, right? Is this a central, is this a central governmental thing? Does it cross uh, international boundaries? Is it by industry? Do we expect the FCA to have an opinion? And who's uh, going to teach them what they need to know before they have an opinion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, I think your point around biases as well, like there's so many potential biases being put into algorithms that will have such a dramatic impact. You know, purely in a in a banking context, it can have such a dramatic impact in terms of where you're lending Huge. to or yeah. the types of businesses or even the backgrounds of the people who are running those types of businesses. So it can be hugely impactful, can't it? Scary times, potentially. Like, I, I bizarrely, I'm going to, this is tangent central here, so apologies on this one. But, I mean, all of the different different types of technologies. Like, I've literally just got a VR headset at home, like an Oculus Quest. That's the best. Keep going. It's amazing, right? <laughs> um, but my, you know, my kids are now having a go on that and learning things in a completely different way. You know, the, the next 10 years, like, Josh, my son, can now, you know, be in Africa and see an elephant, not just, like, read a book and, and see this thing. So all of the different contexts of, of this, both from, a, you know, the distribution of services, the way in which people interact with things, the it's, it's quite um, – it's either going to be this dystopian view of the world of, like, sci-fi and where we can – end up or it's going to be this magical thing and actually probably the truth is going to be somewhere in between isn't it it terrifies me that the the deciding point might be in the hands of regulators though who are sitting in their offices not necessarily actively engaging with these topics well i mean if it's regulators or if it's capitalists it's going to be one or the other isn't it you know usually and and it's similar to some some of the stuff that we've seen before where people get ahead on technology to their benefit essentially so i mean to your point around things like napster you know napster was somebody who was better at technology than the uh, music industry for distribution. And then Apple called on and legitimized it and turned it into a thing. No, but I think Napster only happened because the record industry forgot that it was technology to begin with. It forgot that Edison was our jobs, right? Edison and his gramophone and radio to begin with and microphones. Mm -hmm. We were a technology business and music was used to sell that technology whether it was record players and CDs and tapes. And then here came a new distribution system. Yeah, We didn't see that. And the lawsuits could have just bought Napster and we could have had a platform. We didn't. Yeah. It's I- really interesting, that point, though, because banking's always had data. Mm. That's the big thing that bank- banking has always had. The bank that has your current account has all the information about what you do. It has information about what you get, where you get your money from and where your money goes. And the challenge here is that the banks have been quite lazy in the way that they've used that. I was so going to say they the, have it. But they don't exactly. Yeah. And it, yeah. so the technology that's coming along is enabling us to use that for the customer's benefit. But there's a risk that it could go the other way if it's not managed carefully and it could work against customers. Mm. You're absolutely right. So far, what has saved us from a consumer perspective is the banks um, have either lack the imagination or ability to do anything with that data. But what is um, what is interesting and scary and, and very much brought to life by the, the descriptions we're hearing is that with every pivotal moment in, in our technological history, there's been an opportunity missed, some learning, and then 
the chance to get things right. But with the capabilities we're discussing here, the opportunity miss could actually have pretty disastrous consequences for certain segments of society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, on the plus side, it should be democratization, right? You know, the He's the resident optimist, yeah. by the way. I mean, David, I, I, David is the happy one. I'm always on the silver lining, I have to say. But on, on, a, on a plus side, you know, democratization of a wealth experience for everybody, that should be, you know, Jason always says, it's like, everybody should bank like Rihanna. You know, there should be 15 people in the back office who are looking at where you should be putting all of your money and everything. I think she had some accounting problems at some point, so maybe not, not quite. Everybody uh, has had accounting problems. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, but <laughs> but the idea that you took that service and digital and the data, to your point, actually allows you to to give everybody that type of experience. This Do you think if I call my bank and say, why am I not banking like Rihanna? They'll know what I'm talking about. I'll know if they're listening to the podcast. I mean, give it a go. Like, see what happens. Next week, we'll uh, um, follow up on that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's an interesting point, though, because we were talking earlier about the generation that's coming through and that has expectations. Mm. But actually, what we've seen is such a wide range of customers, if you look at the demographics of them, we have a range of customers, say, with our fixed savings products, ranging from age 18 through to 100. Mm -hmm. Literally, our oldest customer turned 100 last year. So, and, and these are people who are using the tech and using the digital experience to get something better in mm-hmm. their lives because it's easy, it's straightforward, it's there, they've got it, they can get a great rate as well. But it's really interesting how that starts with a younger generation and filters mm-hmm. out. There's almost something here about that young generation coming in and helping the older generations to get the benefit from the technology that's relevant to them. Mm-hmm. But there's still a lot of, I mean, I've, I'm not sure that it fixes some of the more fundamental issues that that, are, that still exist in the banking industry today. So if anything, data makes it more possible mm. for institutions to figure out more ingenious ways of either saving customers money or let's face it, there's rarely a benign imperative. So they're also thinking about ways of making money. Mm. We talked earlier, uh, Will, about the sort of freemium premium model. And at one level, what that says is that you've got a whole bunch of freemium customers and they get a proposition and then you've got premium guys who get more. So they pay more, but they get more. It's either an ad stripper or it's additional content or whatnot. But at least they're getting more for their money. And and that business determines that it wants to move people from the freemium model into the premium model. Yeah. And but for a time, the guys who are on the freemium model are getting it for free. Yeah. Their their ride has been paid for by the premium guys. The problem with banking is that it's always had the same model. So if you've got a current account in the UK and you're not paying for your current account, which is the the norm. The people who are paying for it don't want to. Hmm. It's not and, like and they're getting can't. more and, yeah. and they mm-hmm. can't. So they're the overdraft. They're the indebted people. They can't get out of it. So it's, it's, it's actually inverted. It's not, you know, they're not paying more for better. Mm. They're actually paying more for less. It's absolutely true. And, and it's actually kudos to you for bringing it up. We don't get many banks here who want to talk about this. But it is absolutely true. And it's societally not sustainable, but it is financially sustainable. And that's why we've been here a long time. Um, Part of the way to crack this is obviously by choosing to be different, like you guys laid out earlier. Partly is using the technology we now have to make running the business cheaper. That's true. But it also, let's not forget that banking is an industry where you have to say no occasionally. In fact, more than occasionally. Mm. Yeah. And and the trouble is that, that bankers don't really like to say no. One, very difficult to build customer advocacy and get customers to warm to you if you're declining their loans. Yeah. You know, how does that figure? No, you can't have the money, but I really want you to like me. Hmm. I don't think that's going to fly. Um, 
and so therefore, and, and actually, if you talk to customers, they don't want their card to be declined at the point <coughs> of sale. You're the only, a bank is the only type of business that says no to customers. Yeah. I was just thinking an airline doesn't say no. Social media companies don't say no. Even when they should. It's the only company, I'm trying to think of any other company that exists and provides a product that declines a customer. And expects so, them to come back. I mean, I mean, there's a barman, it's right? Pretty, Hopefully yeah. at some point a barman will say no to you. Other than that, we're... Barman and no, weapon pretty, sales. Yeah. No, like, it's cause, because saying no, sometimes you have to say no. Mm. Because you're protecting not only the business, you're protecting society. Mm. But, but, but there's something in the way that you say no as well. And, and traditionally, the banks have just said it's a hard no. And actually, that you know, there are some reasons why, because obviously you have to protect the business and you have to protect customers, the, the, the wide range of customers who are trying to do good things from the bad guys. So you can't always say, oh, there's a suspected fraud here because that's tipping off the bad guys. But actually, if the bank can go into a little bit more detail about the reasons why they've said no and what you can do to get better, surely that's going to help customers. Yeah, and so saying, no, you can't have the money, but you'll get the money if you go away and do X, Y, Z and to put yourself in a better position. And financial health yeah. piece. Then. And that's when the yeah. biases, the AI biases, the algorithmic biases come into play and why they're important. Mm. Because if we're basing it off of the past and why certain people got told no that went to the bank and got loans, then it's, you know, minorities, folks that live in poverty-stricken areas, African, Latino, poor... Arab poor. Um, and if you take human bias and now put it on a machine, an algorithm, whoa, tomorrow's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, that's it, the exa- why, it exaggerates yeah. the biases. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. That's the reason why that flag being waved now, yeah, mm. as these algorithms are starting to be Im- implemented into business practices, not you know, it's not the norm yet. Mm-hmm. But on the flip, just how far you could go to make things better for those people as well. Just yeah. Just days is, is insane if you have the motivation to do it. Mm. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the reason why, you know, having these – have that's, that's why I'm so optimistic about AI. Because the reason why a poor ghetto is a poor ghetto is not a machine. That's human. Mm-hmm. So where humans got it wrong. Well, we were not human to other humans. We had this inhumane, you know, prejudice – perspective on things and a whole lot of people got left behind and if we could get it right now in this era this generation and you fix that bias when we know it's around the corner and having other folks in the conversation because if this was like eight seventeen nineteen we know who was in a part of the conversation if this was eighteen nineteen we know once again from 15, 19, 16, 19, 17, 19, 18, 19, 19, 19, we know the people that were not a part of the conversation. The reason why I have, like, there's this sigh of like, wow, I'm so happy the World Economic Forum put me on the board of AI to talk about biases, algorithmic biases. I come from the projects. Why am I on the board? What got me into, you know, you know into AI in the first place? And that is, you know, it's a blessing. It's um, an honor um, to be having this conversation now about, you know, algorithmic biases as they, they're starting to be implemented in the highest form of, you know, business like banks, government. Imagine folks that are, you know, looking for parole and these algorithms are in our prison systems. 
who's going to get parole and who doesn't. If it's based off of, you know, scraping all the data that prisons and judicial systems had in the past, it's just going to repeat itself. Mm-hmm. You know? So these conversations are super, super important. So we have an amazing tomorrow. It's and interesting I, that we even see those biases coming through already, though. So you mentioned uh, voice recognition technology earlier. And there's data that shows that women struggle with voice recognition technology mm-hmm. because typically it's designed by men mm-hmm. for men. So it doesn't recognize women's voices. Or Aberdeen. Yeah, it doesn't recognize accents. Yeah, absolutely. And here I was thinking it was my accent. (laughs) Oh, no, it's just women. Just half the population. It doesn't understand fit like. (laughs) It's worth doing the blatant plug for the last time you met Will was up at the university where we're looking squarely into these things Mm -hmm. and working with Newcastle on um, the FinTrust program. So that is specifically looking at bias in AI, bias in chatbots, and... Trying to find solutions to, to to drive out the the unconscious elements mm. of that as well. So. I think it, a lot comes back to the point you were t- saying earlier on around trust. Yeah, I mean, like if you can't trust the people and you can't trust the algorithms, then actually you get to a bad place very quickly. With to your point around the communication back to people, I think you know bringing it back to banking a little bit is like people have been used to banks talking to them not like human beings. You know, you are, and and for some good reasons in some of that, you know, I always kind of say if like you, you receive a message from your bank and you take it and you text it to your mum, your mum would be like, what have I done? You know, like, uh, what did I, how have I offended you? Um, so, you know, the idea that essentially you can start talking to humans like humans, but that the trust is in the brands that actually you, you have. So if you do say no, then actually you're on a good footing to actually push back because you have that trust, you have that relationship with your customers mm. that actually allows you to, to do that. You know, the place where... I mean, the regulator has been very scared about anybody saying anything, really. So, you know, now you can actually start having much more dialogue and explaining to people why uh, and doing it like a human. I think people will start getting a lot better response. Even even if it's not telling them the reason why you've declined them, telling them things that could help them to improve their financial Mm. health is going to make a difference. You know, all these people who are trying to get their their foot on the housing ladder in their who are in their early to mid 30s. You know what? 40 years ago, no, no one would have believed that it was such a struggle to get your foot on yeah. the housing ladder. But if you can educate those people on how to improve their credit score, so go away and do a bit of this and do a mm. bit of that. And actually, there are ways that you can get your payment of your rent taken into account in assessing your credit mm. score. But for us in the banking industry, I think there is an obligation and a responsibility there for us to help people understand that, but also for us to make it easy for them to do that. Yeah. I mean... SMEs is a space exactly like that. You know, Simon, you've been doing a lot of things in this space from a lending perspective, because when you're, you know, an entrepreneur running a business and you're looking to a (coughs) bank for support, like you you say, empathy in that in terms of the comms is a huge thing, right? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly the same challenge. And, you know, it's the UK SME um, population, a woefully underserved group of people. And, um, you know, the they're falling between the gap of the accountant and the bank and no one's giving them that level of advice that says here are some things you can do to get yourself lending ready for instance or borrowing ready from a customer perspective um you know uh, when you have excess cash how are you earning interest on that uh, who's advising you on that who's showing you the best products mm. so um i think it's a significant amount um of innovation coming in in that space. The, it's, uh, it's really interesting as well that when you talk to SME customers, so these are just normal people running businesses, right, that take up 18 hours of every day of their life. They And you say to them, what do you think you need to help make your financial situation better? Typically they say, I need a relationship manager. I need someone to tell me what to do. You don't. 
You need banks to better use your data mm. and to then present it to you in a way that's mm. more meaningful to when, you. When, when you say banks use your data, what data? So the data that you get from those people, their financial data. But not data like all your data. No, no, no. The data that they share so that you can help them understand. But the more data they share with you, the more you can get an insight into how so they like, run their business. And I just, I just want to ask a question like, Facebook has so much data. And they give you a product for free. It's like it, the first time in human history where like free means you're so much more wealthier than folks that are paying for something. Mm. Like there's, there's never been a society like this to where I'm going to give you a free product and I'm going to have more money than these folks that are selling stuff. <laughs> so true. And what they get is like so much data by everything. Mm. Like people live on Instagram. If people paid more attention to their account like they do their mm. account. Yeah, so there's there's a value exchange there from a banking perspective, which we have we we potentially have access to huge amounts of data, historical data, what you've spent, stuff that's in your accounting packages and things. If you choose to share that with us, we should be demonstrating you value back. No, but and, who who should hold my data? All my activity data. What I where I go, who I know, my spell check. My, my comments, right? I'd love if to I, see if, I, if, I know, if I know a company is scraping all my social activity and buying that data from companies that are giving me something for free, and then my insurance premiums go up because of things that I've said, mm. like what? People don't realize your data is purchasable by a numerous amounts of companies, yeah. governments, insurance companies. All the stuff you, you're doing on social media, people are going to oh, purchase. Yeah, I saw now, who owns that data? Isn't it a human right that, shouldn't I be banking that data if it's mine? Mm. Yeah. But, but the there's no is product that, yet. No, but the T's and C's that you sign when you sign up to that service signs away all your rights to that data. You're signing them over to that but company. I really think there's a new thing around the corner. What we're talking about right now is the right now. Yeah. We're talking about the Nokia right now and the iPhone ain't here yet. Like we think in the world right now is like this forever, where it's like BlackBerry and Nokia, and there's no iOS, there's no app community, where it's where where data is human right, mm. and if that's the case, where do I store my individual data, my family's data? Like for all my activity. Yeah. But that's then, a very interesting point. And if we stay with it, it, it raises a very interesting question. Because now a lot of people give away their data to social media companies without necessarily realizing the value of it mm. and the usefulness of it. And they give away bank to their data, hoping that um, the usefulness will come back to them and, and not necessarily getting much out of it, particularly from traditional players. Uh, and there is a, a moment 20 years into the future, to pick on what you were saying, well, that We've cracked that and people transact on their data. But there is also a very disrupted time between the two where folks will start utilizing that data before you and I realize what we've given away. Yeah, I think you're right. And there I is zero protection. There. Interestingly, you got where did you used to put your stuff of value? That was a bank vault. I think it's really interesting. What What is the bank's role in those propositions that allow you to package, own, control, monetize your own data. So. There are yeah, companies like, that are already using people's data against them, though. So the fact that insurance companies have started declining people's claims if they get broken into while they're on holiday 
And they've been on Facebook saying, I'm going on holiday for a week. Mm. So if you've publicized the fact that you're going on holiday and someone breaks into your house, the insurance company will turn down your claim. That's crazy, And right? they've started writing it into but, their but terms you, and conditions. But if you think about it, right, right now, Apple has a credit card, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right now, Apple's making freaking movies and stuff. Amazon, who sells you stuff that other people make, they're making films too. It's as if every... Everyone that has products that either gets your mind share, your ears and eyeballs are in the business of trying to be in multiple businesses. But then the business that's always been in our business, the bank, I think tomorrow's platform may seem like a weird, you know, what I'm about to say is like, oh, there's no way that's going to happen. Why would a bank provide a platform for people? But maybe 2040 to break up what we have right now, which is kind of inhumane in a way. I'm not saying that the companies that are providing these services are inhumane. That's not what I'm saying. But if you take a snapshot of right now versus an alternative 2040, what is a bank product that they're going to provide for you? Mm. Are they just going to hold the things that are valuable? But my data is valuable. I just don't know it yet. Mm. The masses don't know it yet. Yeah. Mm. They don't know just how valuable their data is. Now, if there's an alternative to what we have now. Who's going to provide that system that I communicate on and live on? Right now is not the way to the snapshot to look at it. And it's a fair point because banks are halfway there in terms of providing that service. Safeguarding assets, physical and non, is something banks have historically been good at. But safeguarding those assets while allowing you to transact with them and figuring out how to make money on top of that, it's not going to be an easy one to crack. Well, banks know something about risk. And, and if I were giving advice to anyone listening to this, one of the things that banks know about risk is that concentration risk is a thing. So don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm. And hedging is another thing, which is that if you take one high risk, try and balance it with a low risk. Mm. Now, if you, if you put yourself there for in the shoes of a customer and say, well, uh, think like a bank for a minute. Yeah, well... Would you give any one company all your data? Really? Are you mad? Uh, would you try and spread your risk, diversify your risk? And I, you know, I'm speaking as a banker. I've been 30 years doing this. Um, I think a healthy distrust of, of companies is a good thing. You should not take for granted that they're going to act in your interest. You should always be watchful about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And if it seems too good to be true... Really it's probably <laughs> too good to be true. You've got to be a bit cynical and skeptical about it because, you know, every every one of these companies from the world's biggest platforms to the smallest ones are trying to make money. And they're either trying to make money out of you, which is fair and reasonable and legitimate, or they're trying to make money out of a product. You are a data set and a set of behaviors, and we can monitor that and we can sell it and we can provide insight on it, either for your benefit or not. And the product is... You know, you want a loan, you want a car, you want something. But but one way or the other, one of the things that banks are good at is managing risk. And one of the risks you have is that your data is going to end up in one place. Don't do that. Honestly, take a leaf from the book of the industry that 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 that's represented around this table. Diversify and hedge. 
This is not financial advice by Mark Mullen. Yeah. <laughs> 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 right terms and conditions. It's, you know what? I, I was listening to Simon earlier, and he was saying that what customers want, and, and indeed Claire, which is you know, customers just want advice. They want to be helped. Yeah, they want to be helped. And it's one of the great difficulties of the whole cursed industry at the moment that one of the yeah, most lad. difficult things to do is to provide advice. Yeah. Because the minute you provide advice, you're saying, well, we told you to do that. And if the customer goes and does it and it doesn't work out, you know, it does come back. So most banks and institutions are running a mile. Yeah. Mm. And just because an AI does it for you doesn't mean that the bank that produced the AI isn't responsible for the outcome. Mm. So, so you're still accountable yeah. for your technology. Yeah. And advice is a real, real gap in the market because people are struggling to know what the right thing to do is. Com completely. The regulator has such a fixation on what is advice and what is guidance. And as you say, from an algorithmic perspective, it will be advice because they are leading you down to a decision around a product or to enact some sort of activity. So it's it's going to be fascinating to see how the regulator sits on this. Well, listen, I think that there's a semantic difference between guidance and advice. When we speak to customers, they want advice. Yeah. They don't say, I'd like guidance, please. You know, <laughs> you Guidance, they take advice yeah, anyway, they right? they take advice. So advice is what customers want. It's not what they're getting. Great. And it's something else which is I, w I want to see facts presented in a way that I can understand them as well, which is different mm. from guidance and advice. Mm. You've got all these data on me. Um, that, those data should be able to be strung together into a forecast of my future position, something that allows me to decide what I need. Mm. And, and this stuff isn't presented to people. And where it is, you have to pay for it. Yeah. So, you know, we, we we believe that there's something in that and certainly in the SME space. And we've been talking, Claire and I, a lot in the uh, personal space about what, what that actually looks like. Mm. Well, I think definitely in the SME space, as you say, it's a, a transactional ledger looking at stuff that I've bought as a business doesn't give me any ideas how to steer the ship going forward. So it's, you know, there's a real gap there of giving entrepreneurs, because to your point, it's, it's like people just want to give me something that helps me do the things that I know I should be doing or I know I shouldn't be doing or, or I don't know I should be doing to a certain degree. Yeah, there's, some, there's something in the fact that so many customers aren't even aware of what options are available to them. Yeah. So until somebody goes, oh, did you know you can do something this way? You don't even know about it. Mm. And there's there's something there about how well we're educating our, even from, from primary school age, not just give them a, a fiver and see if they can run a business as a little entrepreneur in a primary school, but actually educate them about how to manage money and about yeah. what the options are in the world so that by the time you leave home and you start earning some money and you're out there in the world, you know how to make the best of that. Mm. We're not doing a great job of that in this country. I, I, I think it's fair to, to tie it back to what we were saying earlier. There was not a massive incentive historically to do that because a poorly educated customer made choices that were often better for, for the organization. But that is slowly changing. Mm -hmm. um, how much headspace do you guys give this? Because I, t I take what you're saying. There's a business to be run. But at the same time, um, you're approaching your products differently. You're approaching your customers differently. Um, you're creating new assets, new tools. Uh, we believe there's an exciting new app coming. How much time are you spending thinking about these things? Um, we think about it all the time. So, so what's making things better for customers? Um, technology is making things better for customers. It's giving people new choice. You know, we'll set new distribution channels uh, and or you know, new ways of using data, new ways of creating an experience and controlling money. Regulating, uh, regulation is still playing a hugely positive role. 
it's, you know, at one level you think, gee, it's risk, it's going to slow technology down, it's going to stop innovation. At another level you think, well, tell that to the people who have been paying exorbitant overdraft fees for the last 30 years. Because the banks have had every opportunity to fix that and they haven't. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, it's taken regulators to step in and say, nope, time's up on that. You're going to have to fix it. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't help the, 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 the millions of customers who, who frankly are never going to get their money back. But at least on a go forward basis, there are some things that, 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 that will improve. Um, the real challenge for us is try not to earn money in a way that you're going to regret. Now, that's an easy thing to say, but at the end of the day, you, you know, if, if the product is too clever and you're running the risk that the customer is not absolutely clear what they're doing, you're running a risk and in a few years' time, you're going to have to give them the money back. Much the same way that PPI was an issue in this country mm -hmm. and maybe overdraft fees and charges is another issue. So, so don't be too clever. Nice, simple, transparent, clear products that just work and do the job. Probably go most of the way to solving most people's financial needs at a, at a very fundamental level. And then secondly, try to avoid, and it's not always possible, but, but as a cardinal rule, um, there's something in the banking industry called cross-subsidization, where one customer is paying for another. And, and there are areas in banking where that's legitimate. Yeah, because ultimately banking doesn't work unless some people lose and some people can't repay their loans. And so some people have to repay their loans or else the whole industry just falls over. <coughs> there are some parts of the banking industry where that's not legitimate because it's not about risk, it's about behavior. And my bugbear is on current accounts. So big problem for us, which is you should be paying for your current account. It's not free. It's just a myth. It's absolute rubbish. It's not free. Trouble is that if we introduce a current account and we, you know, we include a fee, in this market, we're not going to sell any. So, so, so you know, what should happen to change that paradigm? You either got somebody like us who's going to lead with their chin and get it broken. In other words, sell no products. Well, you can you can have a really high moral conversation with yourself as you go bust, <laughs> or or you can try and put pressure on on, on our regulators. To say, this just doesn't work. This freemium premium model in banking is a lot of old rubbish as long as the people who are actually paying are the people who are debt trapped. Mm. And, and somebody's got to sort of, I think, on the regulatory side of this industry, wake up and do something about it. I, I, could, I couldn't agree more with that because if you do go heroically forth with this, uh, even people who know it to be true and morally resent that the, the people who can least afford it subsidize the rest mm. of the uh, of the current accounts in the country, very few people will take it on the chin and, and choose to be the first to redress that deficit. It has to be an industry-wide change yeah. so that you don't have to make that moral choice for yourself. I guess it comes back to what we were saying at the top, though, right? The the sort of choice or competition. You know, I, I guess since the crisis, we have had some regulatory reform to allow new people to come into the market to offer yeah. actual competition <laughs> rather than just more of the same. So, it, so it's moving, moved away from protectionism of real big organizations to real sort of creation of competition, particularly here in the UK, I'd say. It, it, listen, it, it, it'd be unfair to say that there's not been some change. There has been change, but it's not really made a dent. Let's be really honest, right? There's six big, if you want, there's something called the CMA9, the nine biggest banking groups that pretty much run about 90% of the show in banking in the UK and have done in some form or the other for the last 100 years or so. So, so yes, 
there's been change. We'd like to think that we're doing our bit and doing our best to drive that change. And we think we've got scope for substantial future growth, right? It's really expensive and really tough to build banks. And, and that, that's not something peculiar to Atom. You can ask anyone in whatever model they're pursuing, this is not a cheap business to build. So, so you've got to have pretty deep pockets and a lot of patience to, to matter. But even if, you, even if you make it as far as we've made it, and you believe you can go an awful lot further because you've got the investors to get you there, you're still tiny. You're talking about businesses that, that are as big as the sun, right? They're not giving up anything anytime soon. Mm. Um, and in many respects, they're still growing. They're still buying things. Because if they, if they see a competitor that they think might be a threat, well, you know what? You can try and match them or you can just buy them. Gobble it up. Well, and, and there's something in the design of, of a simple, straightforward proposition. Mm. Uh, the banking industry has worked for years to make these products as complex as possible <laughs> so they can justify their existence. So when you come along and say, you know what, I'm going to unpick that and make it more straightforward, there is then some resistance to that because actually you're showing that the value needs to come in a different way. Mm. So to Mark's earlier point, making our proposition as simple and straightforward and easy to use as possible and adding value through the experience is our take on it. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's easy to do. Yeah. Can, well, I, you, can, I, can I rewind something again? You yeah. said something just a couple of seconds ago. <clears throat> you said certain customers pay for other customers that are in debt. Can you? Can yeah, you? of course. So if, if you know, it's it, one, of, one of the most difficult parts of the UK banking industry are overdraft customers. They're people who are always in debt. And in the UK, they've been paying interest on their borrowing. Mm -hmm. This is just their current account borrowing. They get paid their salary. They haven't got enough money to make it to the end of the month. They use an overdraft. They pay interest on the overdraft. And then they sometimes pay a daily fee as well. And then sometimes they pay penalty fees. And it's one of the biggest sort of, you know, income sources for banks. Um, whereas people who don't use overdrafts don't pay for banking. They're not paying it, you know, in, in America, they pay for checking accounts and they mm -hmm. usually pay, you know, a fixed fee a month or something per transaction. So here's the, the problem with this is that, that if you've got a whole bunch of customers, freemium customers, mm -hmm. they're not paying for anything. The actual premium customers are the, are the indebted customers, are the people who can't get out of the overdraft cycle. Mm, yeah. And they're the guys who are paying the fees and charges. Trouble is they're not getting a better deal, they're getting a worse deal. Although the banks would say, well, you're borrowing, it's a risk, yeah? Um, and, and, and that's been the case for as long as I've worked in this, in, in this gig. Um, What's really interesting about it is it's taken the regulator to change it. It's not happening because somebody with uh, with a moral compass has decided that this is disproportionate or unfair. It's taken somebody uh, out, uh, you know, from the regulator to say, "Hey, this is just not it's on." Right. It's only taken them twenty years, mm -hmm. incidentally, because it started off with an Office of Fair Trading court case years and years ago. Mm -hmm. 20 years to get to the point where we think this needs to change and you're going to have to report what credit interest or what debit interest you're charging and it won't implement until 2020 Yeah, and it won't remediate anyone. In other words, if you paid those fees over the last 30 years, hard luck. What's crazy is what you just explained as far as banking and finances is exactly what it is for the music industry. So a music record company is just a bank and it hit me when you said that it hit me to heart I remember, <laughs> <clears throat> I remember it was 1999 sorry yeah it was 1999 and someone said Eminem keeps the lights on in here I'm like what do you, what, what do you mean 
They're like, yeah, Black Eyed Peas, you guys are in debt. It's like, we're in debt. He was like, yeah, your tour support. You guys went on three tours since 1997, since we signed you. He did the, you know, Smoking Grooves tour, the Big Day Out, and the uh, MTV Campus Invasion tour. So I didn't really think anything of it. Then 2002 came around. And then Black Eyed Peas, we were in like a $6 million debt in tour costs, recording costs, video costs, living expenses. And then I asked the person, his name was uh, Jomo. No, Mojo. Sorry, dyslexic. His name was Mojo. I was like, yo, Mojo, what do you mean, you Eminem? You, told, you said this in 1999, Eminem keeps the lights on. He was like, yeah, well, Black Eyed Peas, you guys aren't generating money. You guys are taking money from the record company. I was like, well, I want to I make the light. I want to keep the lights on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, don't want to be in debt. And so we changed our approach and how we wrote songs to not just make songs for people that look like us, but for people that just look like us from the ears, hmm. not look like us, how we dressed. <clears throat> and we got out of debt. And we were one of the groups on Universal, which is a global label, at Universal, Universal being a, a bank for all artists. They provided money for folks to go out and you know turn their dreams into reality, tour support and stuff like that, video support. It is like a big bank. <clears throat> and now instead of your songs being bought, your songs are licensed. And the fight that, we, that artists are having now is being paid for the license. Because most folks are getting paid as if they're still selling records. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, that, that must be really hard to go from, uh, we're going to get way distracted from banking here, but I'm loving this. So I'm gonna run <laughs> no, but that is banking though. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but you went, I guess it's, you move from building, uh, creating music for yourself to creating music for other people to a certain degree. Yeah, for um, people. I guess on, like, I'm, I'm a fan. So like your last album Sounds more to me like you're making it for you now. Yeah, when you're making it money. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we'll put that, right? That was. (laughs) Context is everything sometimes. Labor of love. Yeah. Yeah. Finding that balancing act is always the critical thing, isn't it, in terms of where you get? But. uh, Yeah, I just want (laughs) to. Yeah, let me me add to that. Yeah, we didn't make any money on that project. So, well, how did you come to get involved in Atom? Like, tell us that story. Oh, there's this guy I call Mr. At. Um, because it was Anthony Thomas, founder of, of Atom. And he contacted me. He sent me this email with this pitch on how he wanted me to get involved. And so I, I saw the, you know, because I, I, I do pitches I get a lot of pitches pitched to me, but this was unique because he like called my name out in the pitch and like, it was a beautiful, like beautiful pitch, the vision of the company. And then towards the end, then the camera like pans to him and he was like, and will I am really want to sit down with you. And the pitch was just to sit down and have a talk, the initial pitch. So then we met and I was like, really you know, it was like a, I was inspired by this guy. It's like, because I never really meet people that have started banks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. You see people that, you know, start a company. I got an app I'm doing, you know what I mean? <laughs> or I got got a shoe line. <laughs> I got a, 
<laughs> you never really meet, especially for me, most people listening, you know, how many people do you run into that wants to start a bank? Hmm. I was really, really inspired. And he showed me the vision of what the, the whole like reason of being of at a bank. Once again, I was inspired because I come from a community where, you know, financial literacy is not taught to the community, you know, where there's check cashing everywhere. So for me, my mind, when he was telling me this, I was like, wow, I didn't learn, you know, finances in elementary school or junior high school or high school. And people that come from communities like I come from, you end, you end up learning once you made massive mistakes. That's your tutorial. Mm. Make some money, lose the money, and then figure it out. <laughs> I was like, wow. And when he was telling me like the whole premise of financial education um, and the things that, you know, he liked what I do, you know, philanthropically with the success of music, going back to the community, teaching kids. Um, and I shared with him a story of, uh, you know, when I made money, my whole concept of saving money was just saving the checks and not cashing them. And then we made a bond. And he's still, you know, a good friend. I talked to him on email. He doesn't work at Adam anymore. But to me, he's Mr. At. Um, yeah, that's how I that's how I got to know Adam Bank. See, you've always got to be careful what's in your email, right? A big uh, <laughs> get a good pitch on email and uh, now and you're uh, spending this time up in, in Durham and uh, and on bank boards. It's uh, like ba- board meetings must be super interesting. Yeah. Um, at first, <laughs> they're not boring. You're Definitely, right. yeah. So a board meeting is, I'm not bored at them. Because <laughs> I like to learn. Yeah. And uh, I'm a sponge. And uh, it's an honor to, to, to be a part of this company in, in the way that I am. Um, and the, the learnings I get, the things I get to share. I sponge up information from a lot of different sources. Um, in the tech sector in the philanthropic sector, um, at the World Economic Forum. How they, how and why I ended up there is beautiful. Mm. But if it wasn't for people like Bono, there wouldn't be a, a gateway for us musicians to be at the World Economic Forum. Yeah. Right, so Bono did a really, really awesome job like breaking down those walls of pers- perspective and what, you know, uh, cynicism and skeptics on what role do we play in economics or government um so hats off salute to bono for that if there wouldn't be a red a, a red campaign if it wasn't for his you know involvement with the world economic forum mm. so yeah it, it's great yeah again it kind of comes back to in a in a different context it's like product and distribution right if somebody somebody can have the best idea on, in the world, but if they can't get anybody to listen to do, to it or do anything about it, it doesn't really matter. Um, being in a situation where people like yourself or people like banks or the World Economic Forum, actually having those discussions and taking them to people who actually do something about it is critical. Because you can have talking shops, but it's these things being put into action. To your point around uh, whether it's uh, you know not having every AI uh, uh, ignoring ladies' voices or whether it's uh, you know it's everything in the, the point around regulation around data sets. It can or be where you travel, right? So I'll be at a conference and <clears throat> this girl by the name of Joy, she brought up, she coined the frame pale male algorithms. I was like, what, what is that? 
She was like, well, how many times when you go to the bathroom do you have to move your hand before the water comes out? Or do you have to turn over the whites of your hand for the water to come out? I was like, wait, everybody doesn't do that? <laughs> She's like, no, Will, everybody doesn't show the whites of their hands. Some people just show the tops of their hands because they're white. Yeah. It's like, holy, I didn't even pay attention to that. She's like, well, that's a pell-mell algorithm that's implemented in some of those faucets. So that conversation from a, from a summit that I went to, um, when I'm at the World Economic Forum, and they're talking about regulations. If I didn't go to that conference and sponge up that information, I would, because the folks that are at the World Economic Forum at the AI Summit probably aren't coming from that perspective because it's all pale males in the AI conference. But Joy probably doesn't have the gateway to be a part of the World Economic Forum mm-hmm. at this point in time in her life. Yeah. So these types of intersections are really important of like perspective, flag waving. And being not fearless from like an egotistical point, but from a caring, empathetic point. Hey, 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 I learned something the other day. So every once in a while, when you get a nugget of information, you're like, wait, wait, slow down for a second. Can you repeat that? Because <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to spun- rinse this out, yeah. but I got to write it down. Mm-hmm. I don't know when the time is that I'm going to rinse it out, but I know I'm going to rinse this out somewhere. Well, and like you say, it's it's amazing you know, those biases is actually coming. Like, I can't what, dry my hands seems like a, it's like a funny anecdote, but it's like a really serious thing that somebody just didn't do their user testing properly. To your point around actually not using enough female voices to test um, voice interfaces for things is actually a really big problem, isn't it? Well, you know, don't that, even get me that, 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 that wasn't the first time that's happened. <laughs> yeah. That's even old school with like crayons. Because crayons, there's this nude color. By the way, that nude ain't my nude. <laughs> <laughs> no, you call it peach. <laughs> that ain't my nude. I think we have a name for the episode now, guys. <laughs> that nude ain't my nude. <laughs> that would make an interesting crayon range as well, wouldn't it? <laughs> I have to say, like, crayon, if you're listening right now, that would be a good one to do. So, <laughs> But um, I, I guess... Um, where do we see this going then? You know, there's a whole heap of different things happening in the fintech industry, banking industry. Where do you guys see this industry moving to? Put you on the spot with a big that, one that's there. That's just a huge question, isn't it? Um, I think the industry... 30 get, seconds. Yeah, yeah okay. So, so succinctly, Mark. Industry's you know. getting better. It's getting better. It's been either forced to get better or competition's going to make it better or technological challenge and changes in what customers experience outside the industry are being brought to bear in the industry and it is forcing the entire banking and financial services industry to up its game. And how the definition of finance, what it becomes tomorrow. For example, a friend of mine's like, I got back all my frequent fly miles. It's like, what do you mean? Well, they disappear if I don't use them, but I called the bank I mean, I called the airline and they gave me my file, my miles back. And now I got, I got back a million, 200,000 miles because I travel a lot. A lot of my friends travel a lot, a million, 200,000 miles, a lot of freaking miles. They could give to their friends and family if they want, or use it for hotel finance. That's, that's finance. Mm. If I could exchange miles and buy other things with it, right? How far is it before the other types of loyalty programs? that allow you to use frequent flyer miles to buy Yeezy sneakers. Can I not trade in my miles and use my miles to buy other things? Yeah, as a currency. It's a currency. So, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of other types of currencies, data coins that are going to be popping up where fintech is going to 
be an umbrella for all types of, you know, things that you trade with. Mm. What about you guys? What do you think? Where are we going? There's so much. There's, <laughs> it's such a huge question. I think for us, probably it's about thinking about bite-sized chunks. <laughs> so managing things one at a time. Lida mentioned earlier that we've got a, a new version of our app coming out in the mm. next couple of months. So I've seen that actually. It's really good. We've taken a lot of feedback from customers since launch and we've fed that into the design process and, and kind of iterated what we've got to get ourselves to a better position with mm. that. So that's coming. And then um, before the end of the year, we'll be expanding our savings range. We currently offer fixed savers. We're going be launching instant savers this year as well and from then on it's it's where we go with other uh, other opportunities in personal banking and in in business banking yeah, I, th- I think in business you know we, we're on a um we're on an agile uh, portfolio of change um doing a balanced sort of set of automation and uh human process improvements uh, around our secured lending product um so you know we've already got 200 million pounds of of borrowing in that space and, and we'll continue there um, and then looking at uh, how over the next uh, 6, 12, 18 months we can start serving uh, the SME market with uh, maybe something more transactional, m- something more useful. I guess the joy of it is with so much to go at, we can uh, we can just knock those jobs off based on the value they deliver to customers and, and, and what we can implement. So, yeah. Very good. I mean, lots of fun stuff to come then, like foreshadowing, foreshadowing. It sounds good. (laughs) All right. On that note, this probably wraps up the Atom Takeover. So thanks very much for everybody for joining us. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Where can people find out more about you, Mark? Um, Google it. (laughs) (laughs) Your hands are in the algorithms. It's no great mystery. (laughs) Simon, how about you? Uh, would find out about me yep uh, you usual, wouldn't want to you, you wouldn't <laughs> want to google me uh, LinkedIn uh, and I'll be popping up all over the place I think Claire where can people find it more about you uh, I've got a LinkedIn and a and Twitter account but I'm not sure anybody wants to know about me <laughs> <laughs> well, I know somebody they definitely do want to find out more about well where can people find out more from you what's your favourite social media account right now um, I don't think I have a favourite one as far as like yeah, I love that. I know the one I'm addicted to um, is Instagram. I find myself having to take myself off of it. Hmm. I have to consciously say, okay, enough. Um, because it's just not, it's not great for keeping friends, real friends. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like dinner, you got to like, we have no phone zone. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, so you do that over dinner. So my wife's tried to enforce that on me a bunch of times, and I I struggle with it. But like I I'm I'm committing to. Hey, it. look, if William no. does it, you do it. Yeah. Okay. No. So and if it is, it's never this. Yeah. It's this. Sure. Okay. <laughs> that makes it all right then. Yeah, because you're engaged. Show me the yeah. You're engaged okay. in what we're. Hey. Look but at this. Thing. This. Yeah. Is a wall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um. So, I don't have a favorite because now. I don't, want, I don't want to put walls up around folks. I, but individual time, I find myself, I mean, it has nothing to do with finance, like banking or anything like fintech. But I find myself sitting on the toilet a lot longer than, <laughs> than I normally should. No. <laughs> dead legs, man. At that point, you go yeah, dead legs. <laughs> like, everybody stop. <laughs> that probably didn't translate too well for a podcast either. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, think that was vivid. That was that's right. Yeah. So anyways, you asked the question. Yeah. I mean, like, so now when, when you send 
Will I am that DM on Instagram? You know where he's going to be, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but yeah, but yeah, I I I I bop all over the place from entertainment and then running my my company with my my co-founder, and um, then my 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 school and raising funds to keep that going. Every February, we have our gala. So between that and then the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the couple of boards I sit on. So yeah, so I, and the touring, and the touring—that's the yeah. thing. And and I mean, weren't you singing with Robbie Williams yesterday? <sighs> you're saying uh, like, hence why the voices. <sighs> no, no, this this is from uh, my voice got got like this after Spain. Um, that was four shows ago. Wow. So yeah, so busy life. So no, yeah, yeah, but it's great. You learn a lot. Yeah. Very cool. You just don't sleep as much. <laughs> <laughs> Learn and don't sleep. That sounds good. All right. On that note, thanks very much, everybody. Uh, tune in next week for FinTech Insider. Dead legs. <laughs> 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 <laughs>